<laughs> My name's Blythe, and uh, it's just really nice to be here with you all this morning and to be here with you in this way. And I'm grateful to dive into the lectionary texts with you today. As a church, we're spending our teaching time in the lectionary calendar this year. Brittany read two of today's lectionary passages earlier. We heard a reading from Luke and another reading from Psalm 80. And we will be talking a little bit about Psalm 80 this morning, but most of our time today will be spent in a lectionary passage that we haven't actually read yet today. Uh, that's Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. So, read together, Psalm 80, which Brittany read, and Isaiah 5, they both collectively give us two sides of the same struggle. As you heard, the psalm voices Israel's lament, asking why God has abandoned Israel, his beloved vineyard. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes, the psalmist asks God. And then, on the other hand, um, Isaiah 5, which we'll read in a bit, offers us the perspective of God, the vineyard's caretaker. And when we put these two lectionary passages in conversation with each other, I think these scriptures offer a rich invitation to us, to us as God's people. And it's an invitation to trust in the God who longs to take care of us. So with that in mind, and before I read today's passage, uh, let's just pray for me, for all of us, uh, before I open up the scriptures. So Lord, please bless the one who speaks today, despite herself. Forgive her sins, which are many, and help us to glimpse your face in the scriptures today. Be near to us and grant us mercy, that we might know you more and sense your tender care in our lives. Amen. I'm going to read Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7, and you're welcome to follow along on the screen or in your Bibles if you have one. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the word of the Lord. Scripture can be challenging, and this passage is no exception. But whenever I read something like this, I think, why shouldn't scripture be challenging? It's a book containing the whole of human experience, our hope and struggle, our errors and effort, our mess and our longing. It depicts both the way of life and the way that does not lead to life, 
And while inspired, it is written by complicated and creative people, so it contains a whole lot of complicated depictions of God, this being one of them, perhaps. When I encounter passages like Isaiah's harsh indictment against Israel here, I remember that scripture is also written by people who ultimately believed in God's goodness, in God's faithfulness, and God's protection and love. So despite passages like the one we just read, the biblical authors believed in a good God. We cannot read these verses in isolation, cut off from Isaiah's belief in the and yet of it all. And yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all who wait for him. So, when we encounter passages like Isaiah 5, or even Psalm 80, what do we do with them? How do we hold them in tension with the love that we know to be true as well? Well, I think at first, we need to ask good questions. And here, I find the words of Marilyn Robinson really helpful, who says in her essay, Psalm 8, that a question is more spacious than a statement, far better suited for expressing wonder. Like Marilyn, I want to approach the scriptures with fascination, to open up to hard content with wonder and curiosity instead of just shutting down. So the first question I have here for Isaiah 5 is what exactly is happening here? Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 7 is called the Song of the Vineyard. So it's a song, it's a poem, an extended metaphor full of hyperbole and imagery rife with artistry. I really like how the poet Dana Gioia puts it, asking quite cheekily, doesn't poetry make holy writ harder to understand? Should we assume that God and his prophets had poor editorial judgment? I think no is the answer that Joy is going for there. Okay, so Isaiah 5 is a poem, and it's a complicated one at that, with layers of analogy and metaphor, three layers actually. It's simultaneously, all at the same time, a song for lovers, a kind of courtroom drama, and then this extended agricultural metaphor as well. So there's a lot going on there. First, the lovers. Let's look at that. A lot of this passage is quite reminiscent of Song of Songs. I don't know if you picked up on that, but there is this sort of erotic element to all the earthy imagery. The winemaker vineyard metaphor was used often in ancient Jewish wedding speeches. And here, Isaiah is kind of like a best man giving a toast in celebration of God and Israel's marriage. But where a wedding speech would normally end in the celebration of good grapes, you know, the fruits of a loving marriage, Isaiah's speech takes a darker turn. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad, he asks. The Hebrew for these bad grapes is beashim, and here we have it translated into English as bad grapes. In other translations, these grapes are called wild, but both those English translations fail to capture the depth of ruin that this bad crop symbolizes. This is the only place in scripture that beashim is used in the, in the Bible, but its root word means to stink like decaying flesh. So instead of producing life and fruit, this vineyard produced stinking rot. Just kind of a horrific image if you really picture it. You know, imagine rifling through vines to pick a plump, juicy grape, and then you find this sort of wrinkled, stinky grape instead, the rot of death. 
something is rotten in Israel and God is not happy. That's what Isaiah is saying here. Which leads us to another question. Why does the winemaker, who symbolizes God, abandon his fruit? What made these grapes so rotten, which causes their caretaker to functionally give up? Well, the lectionary stops at verse 7. Verse 8 begins to actually answer this question. Isaiah spends the rest of the chapter outlining a series of woes that reveal the specific charges against Israel. The first being, they are amassing wealth with no concern for the poor. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. That's verse 5, 8. Secondly, they're chasing comfort and luxury and depend on their own resources with no regard for the way of God. Woe to those who rise early and run after their drinks, who stay up late till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. That's Isaiah 5, verses 11 to 12. And third... They are using power badly, bribing and extorting the vulnerable. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. That's Isaiah 5, verse 22. I think that slide's a little bit wrong. And the song of the vineyard culminates with a summary of this behavior. God looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress, Isaiah writes. Justice and righteousness are often paired together in the Old Testament. They're these central qualities in the Jewish vision of a messianic rule, a hoped-for rule that would bring right relations, harmony, and wholeness to every corner of the earth. Justice and righteousness were, in many ways, the foundation of the reign that would bring shalom. We see this throughout the Old Testament. And here, using this very familiar set of twin terms, Isaiah is playing with the Hebrew, specifically playing with sound patterns in the Hebrew, just to emphasize how far Israel was exploiting God's intent of shalom for all. So I'm going to read the verse again with a little bit of the Hebrew rhyme in it. He looked for mishpat, but saw mispak, for sadaka, but heard sa'aka. The rhyme would strike a chord in Jewish listeners, and they would know to pay attention to this very serious accusation against them. At the heart of this accusation, Israel is depicted as those who live like they don't need God. They don't look to God for provision, but chase wealth and comfort at the expense of those who have less. They're not living into the way of the Lord. Not only are they indifferent to their most vulnerable neighbors, but they extort them, both directly and indirectly. God longed for a fruitful society to bless the world for good grapes, but here, God only hears the cries of the poor. And this makes God angry. Our God doesn't take a casual attitude to the concentration of wealth among so few when so many are in need. The prophet calls out to this, whoa, stop. This way of living is in opposition to the way of our Lord, and it will lead you away from the path of life. It would be to our benefit to heed these warnings, too. 
It's easy to judge Israel, to distance ourselves from this behavior. We might think things like, well, we would never add house to house or field to field in this economy. Surely not. But I wonder if their sins are more familiar than we realize. I wonder if, at its root, these sins are about a fundamental lack of trust, something we can all relate to. At the time of Isaiah's warning, Israel was living under the growing threat of Assyria. Both Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 were written in a global context of struggle amidst the growing threat of Assyrian invasion and all of these related wars that eventually led to Israel's captivity by this ancient Near Eastern superpower. I wonder if, Israel, if Israel's rich add house to house and field to field and extort the innocent because initially, at some core level, they fear there isn't enough to go around. They have to get theirs before someone else does. And once they get some, it's not enough. They want more. Maybe it's the threat of the political superpowers. Maybe it's the constant fear of famine in an agricultural landscape. I don't know why they stockpile like this. But at its root, I think this kind of behavior comes from a perception of scarcity, that something will run out. It's hard to trust that God holds our needs in his hand when we view the world through this lens of scarcity. For us here and now in Vancouver, things like warfare, political invasion, and famine aren't as active of threats. Those aren't the things keeping us from trusting that God will be faithful, that God is enough. For us in Vancouver today, the threat is more this false perception of scarcity. To live from a place of perceived scarcity is to believe that there isn't enough for everyone. It's to live from a place of constant survival, which sinks deep into our central nervous system, our habits. An abstract belief in the world's scarcity turns into these very tangible, anxious practices, whether it's the amassment of wealth or hoarding or panic buying, obsessing over our investments, constantly worrying about security. Insert your own habit of scarcity here. I'm sure you can think of some. We see this clearly in our culture and stories and images of shops on Black Friday, but we also know it intimately in our hearts. In the darkest seasons of our life, it's so easy, like the psalmist, to feel the sting of abandonment. It's easy to conclude, like Israel, that God has left us to our own vices and to strive to provide for ourselves. It's hard to trust that God holds your needs in his patient, loving hands amidst the threat of crisis, whether it's a housing crisis, economic collapse, the threat of war, or just a crisis of the heart. And in this space of distrust, we often deviate from the way of God, from his rule of life. We take matters into our own hands. Lyman Stone is a researcher at McGill in Montreal, and in an interview on Plow Magazine's podcast, he very sympathetically explains this scarcity mentality. It's a bit of a long quote, but you can follow along on the screens. He says, the human brain is hardwired. We could say evolutionarily hardwired, to be afraid of shortage, to stockpile, to plan for hard times, to deal with the ever-present threat of running out. That's really, really intuitive to us. We come from the people who survived the famine. 
our ancestors, right? And so we are adapted to stockpile. We just haven't made the cognitive shift to account for the fact that we actually live in a different world now. And so this idea that we don't have to be governed by the shortage and famine mentality, that we can in fact live under a mentality of freedom and ingenuity and innovation, well, there's just a mental block there. There's kind of a grasping old Adam that just wants to pile up rice in the basement. I like that phrase. It's helpful, too, to remember that this fretful state of mind is evolutionary, that, that you know, there's not a lot that we can do to override it on our own. It helps us develop compassion for this habit of ours. But, while that's good, at the same time, left unchecked, it is ultimately a bad place for our brains to be. And it's bad for our world. Our desire for excess, rooted in the belief that we need more and more, is bleeding creation dry until she, like Israel's poor, cries out in distress. If living from a place of scarcity means fearing that there isn't enough, not enough jobs, not enough resources, not enough belonging, then to live from a mentality of abundance means to live as if there is enough for everyone. That provision and grace are hardwired into the fabric of God's creation and to trust what's given. To believe in abundance means to believe that the world is enough and that God is enough and to live from that place, a place where we remember that we are abundantly and belovedly cared for. One of the risks with this language, I think, is to associate abundance with this kind of capitalistic excuse for excess. You know, we might hear abundance and then wrongly associate it with having lots of things or lots of status. But ironically, it's the inverse, right? Excess and its related desires, you know, the desire to fill our lives with stuff or to always buy the latest gadget or to invest in ethically problematic companies because they're gonna give us great ROI. All of these habits come from a feeling like we don't have enough, we need more. When in truth, we do, we have enough, we are taken care for. To see the world through a lens of abundance means recognizing the simple ways in which we are provided for. You know, things like food falling off chestnut trees, food growing on brambles that spread wildly under the overpasses, God's creation being alive in spite of ourselves, and to treat it not with fear, nor a scarcity-driven desire to dominate it, but with an abundance-oriented humility, generosity, and love. That is to see life through a kingdom logic. It's trusting that today's manna is enough. Tomorrow's will always come. It is a grace to be alive. Most of the time, though, I am more like familiar old Israel, scanning the horizon for ways to save my own skin, trying in my own way to amass security because I'm afraid of what tomorrow might bring. Matt and I live in a supposedly 600 square foot condo. It's two bedrooms. <laughs> it's one of those sort of three in one, like living room is your kitchen and kitchen is your dining room situations. I'm sure some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we're grateful for the space. It's exactly what we needed a few years ago when we got pregnant with our daughter while we were living in this very creaky three-story walk-up. Um, so yeah, lots to be grateful for there. 
but now we have another baby on the way, and I find myself panicking quite a bit about our housing situation. Yeah, we can totally technically fit a fourth family member in there. Newborns are tiny, they don't take up a lot of space, but I do feel like we'd stub fewer toes and like maybe literally run into each other less in the night in, I don't know, a 650 square foot condo? Just like an extra pantry's worth of room would be great. We'll put the baby in there, they'll be fine. Bigger units do exist in our building, so this is totally within the realm of possibility. Most of the other two bedrooms um, on our floor are just a bit more spacious. And after seeing a neighbor's, we decided to tell our building manager that we would just love to go on a wait list for anything bigger. Uh, turns out there's no wait list. We are the wait list, you know, so we're top of the list, first in line, I was told. Great, that's awesome. Feeling really hopeful. Just last week, after spending two weeks on Vancouver Island, where I'm from, we came home and saw new people coming out of our neighbor's door. We'd been gone for the last part of July and for the first week of August, so we would have missed any signs of a move-in day on the first. Seeing these new neighbors, I felt very confused. Why didn't anyone, including our old neighbors, who we know, mention that they were moving? And wait, why didn't our building managers honor the waitlist on which we're number one? My confusion very quickly shifted into anger. I can't believe this, I fumed. I was very blind with grumbling. We were entitled to that bigger unit, not these people. I went inside to unpack from our trip and immediately started complaining to Matt, who very characteristically had not blinked an eye at a stranger's unexplained appearance in our neighbor's home. Whereas I felt fearful and a bit despondent, to be honest. Outwardly, I quieted my complaint, but inwardly, I kept nursing my grumbles, nursing my fear, afraid that we would be stuck in this situation forever. I was kind of spiraling a little bit. And in that moment, I was completely unable to see the grace in our current situation. A situation where, in a city full of lonely people, we actually have five good friends in our building. A place where our neighbors, Claire and Cole, regularly swap babysitting with us or run onions down the hall when we're in the middle of making dinner. A place where other neighbors share loaves of bread with us. Thank you, Zach, if you're here. I don't think you are, but maybe you'll hear this. It's a small and a temporary home, to be sure, and yeah, we will continue to look for something bigger, but it is a home filled with gift. A home where Jordan and Olivia, who live three floors up, fill the gap that's created from living in a city without our families, whether by taking our daughter, who adores them, off of our hands some afternoons, or just by being present companions to us. Ours is a home that is generous with light in a neighborhood, this neighborhood, which we love. I forgot all of this in my moment of panic and rage. A scarcity mentality blinds us to the abundance that is present in the simplest of things. It blinds us to the constant, everyday, and ordinary grace in our lives and in the world. Not in a way that erases the struggle of being human or the struggle of housing in Vancouver, because those are realities that we do need to acknowledge, but in a way that festers, turns things rotten, 
turned out, to my shame, by the way, that those strangers coming out of my neighbor's unit were actually my neighbor's parents. You may have seen this coming. They were in town to visit my very tired, very pregnant mother of two neighbor and probably give her some much needed support. So yeah, whoops. I quickly repented, sheepishly told Matt, and just kind of went about my day with my tail between my legs. But when we live in the constant fear of scarcity at the back of our brain, like I so often do, we risk this constant problem forecasting, this worrying, striving, coercing, which can turn into taking and taking, anything that will help us manage our anxiety about having so little control. And it is hard to feel like you have no control. It's scary to feel like you lack something or lack so much, to feel as if adulthood is a threatening place to be. But when that pain is misdirected, it's a dangerous place for our hearts to be. It deforms us spiritually, turning us into a people who cannot remember how to trust that God is our good, patient, and loving caretaker that we are God's beloved, and it leads us away from God's way of life, where there is enough for everyone, into a life where I am responsible for looking out for number one, and that's me. At its root, I think this scarcity mentality is about forgetting that we are God's beloved. I believe God wants to heal us of that memory loss, inviting us to see the abundant ways that God cares for us. With sort of more doomsday prophecies like we heard in Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard, we must understand them in the context of God mourning for a beloved, warning them before it's too late. If there was no hope, why would God send a prophet? This is a wake-up call for God's people, for a wayward nation who've been lulled to apathy and are missing out on the gift of life that God has for them. Because the extortion of Israel's poor isn't just bad for those experiencing poverty. It's bad for Israel's indifferent, greedy landowners too, for their souls and for the image of God in them. Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard describes a people who are living as if they don't need God and the injustice that results from this way of being. And yet, as we heard in Psalm 80, they do need God. The psalmist's lament shows us this. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Psalm 80 was written about two or more decades after Isaiah 5, just a handful of years before Assyria's final invasion, in which several thousand Israelites from the kingdom of Israel were forcibly relocated by the Assyrian Empire. So at the time of this psalm's composition, only three tribes were hanging on to their independence. They're actually mentioned at the start of this psalm. It's Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Here, we see signs of the fear of political oppression in closing in, the fear of destruction playing out. The wealthy extorting folks in Isaiah 5, who once held no need for God, are now made aware of their creaturely dependence on God's saving help. Their homes and land and bribes are no longer helpful. Stripped bare, we all need God. 
As mentioned, Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 show two sides of the same struggle. Read together, they show us both sides of the covenant between God and Israel, a covenant of fidelity to each other. And though at the time this covenant is seemingly threatened, we must remember that this is ultimately a covenant rooted in Israel's belovedness and God's love for his people. Both Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 play with the vineyard metaphor. Israel as vine is a pretty common motif throughout scripture. Jesus even picks up on it in the New Testament, most famously in John 15. I'm sure a lot of our minds go there when we hear Old Testament passages like this. And I suspect the abundance of vineyard metaphors in scripture has a lot to do with the prevalence of winemaking in an agricultural era, you know? It was a world where almost every listener would have some close relationship to the land, to harvesting its fruits. They'd understand the painstaking care that goes into the vineyard, the loving attention required for its survival. But what if these earthy metaphors were more than just a way to reach an agricultural people? a way to speak their language. What if this agricultural metaphor is also a reminder of our origin story too? That like the vine, we too are formed from the soil, the humus. That we too are made from dust. A reminder to feel created. And in recalling our creation, what if these metaphors ask us to remember that we are beloved? As Psalm 103 says, our createdness is entangled in our belovedness. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. To recall our createdness is to remember that we are beloved too, attended, cared for. What if we lived from this place? What would it do to our tendency to view the world through a lens of scarcity? What would it do to our interactions both with God and with each other? Though there's suffering for Israel in Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard, the passage, harsh as it may be, is situated in a section that culminates in a vision of restoration. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah writes, that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The wolf will live with the lamb and a little child will lead them. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's Isaiah 11 um, verses one and then part of six to nine. The story does not end in the barren vineyard. A shoot will come up. God will make a way. As said, Isaiah and Psalm 80 give us both sides of God's covenant with Israel. A covenant that, despite its drama, is ultimately rooted in God's love. And this perfect love culminates in this new covenant made in Christ's death and resurrection. Christ who claims us as his own, as his beloved, no matter how many times we fail to get it. Christ who tenderly and sometimes fiercely calls us into the way of the kingdom. Ours is a covenant rooted in the mystery of the cross 
and with it an invitation to trust the ways of the kingdom, to trust in the one who loves abundantly and to live into this promise of abundance.